Hi, you're listening to Offsite, a series of interviews with theatre makers who work in unusual, site-specific, site-responsive and non-traditional spaces. This series was recorded over two weeks in December 2020 and is supported by the Arts Council. I'm Owen Winning and today I'm talking to John McCarthy. John McCarthy. Uh, John is a writer, actor and director living in Cork. He is currently a recipient of an Arts Council theatre bursary for playwriting and is working on a new musical for young people, as well as season three of In Darkness Fast. His latest play, The Herd, premiered as part of the Everyman's Play It By Ear season. He recently performed in the national tour of Blackwater Babble by Broken Crow and directed Ty Kiki's acclaimed solo show In One Eye and Out The Other by Cacoots. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor at the Irish Times Theatre Awards in 2019 for his performance as Valeen in The Lonesome West by The Everyman. He is also one of the founding members of Hammergren, the company behind Latch, Hollander and Kay, the Iowa Project. John, thanks for uh, chatting to me. Lovely to be talking to you, Owen. Um, did you get to see much theatre as a kid? No, actually, um, not really, although um, every Christmas we went to the Panto, we were living in West Cork as a family and we'd be brought up to that and that was a big event, um, huge event and mm. uh, I, some years we'd see uh, the Opera House Panto, I mean I didn't know them at the time as different Pantos but I do remember thinking gosh this is a very different kind of feel to the Panto last year mm. when you go to let's say Everyman one instead. Um, but the first kind, I mean that is theatre obviously but the first thing that when I was drawing on uh, the first kind of theatre show that I would draw upon that, that really played on my imagination when I was a bit older was a Dancing at Lunasa production that I saw in the Cat Club. And mm. I think I was like I was brought by my dad. So I must have been, you know, still pretty young, like, you know, 35, 36. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, I was um, I was just spellbound by the whole thing. I mean, I had no idea what was going on, I think. But, but my memory of it is very visual. My memory of it is like a kind of a freeze frame which i may well have created afterwards of course of just a you know kind of a dark nest with the light in the middle of it of a, of a place um and and then waiting for people to sing and move and dance and talk and yeah i thought it was extraordinary mm. um so uh, that would have been it then until um youth youth theater and i saw a lot more theater then because so, of that were you always artistic um, definitely, all, yeah, like, um, in, the, in the way that every child is, I suppose, uh, and I, I did really like drawing, which would have been um, definitely what you thought of as being artistic when you were um, growing up in the 80s, and I definitely remember kind of, I remember a friend of the family who was a lot older um, saying uh, he's always doing roles on the floor, um, um, which is, and then I applaud him. And, and at that point, I was a bit, and something about it was embarrassing, you know, that I was like, yes, I do always roll around on their floor. Um, 
like you know doing like tumble over heels and and acrobatics uh so there was always an element of performance and i used mm. to with my sister like co-opt her into this kind of whenever there was an excuse like christmas or someone's someone was visiting that we would put on a show um so there was almost always that element of of being um performing and creative and uh yeah playing in the imagination definitely yeah were you were you directing those shows like and was everything was there costume uh, involved there, there, I remember like shoving like balloons up my top and stuff to oh, wow. you know um there was yeah there was everything involved it's taken me about 30 years to get back to a position <laughs> where I can write write direct and act in my own <laughs> um, pieces as you heard the other night in the herd but mm. it was uh it was yeah it was like I again it was there was something that I thought thought that everyone and I think it's only when I get older that I realized that that's not the case I thought everyone felt this kind of like charge of oh my goodness it's like the show is nearly going to start oh my goodness and, you know you put the you put the cushions from the couch out for people to sit on and you just and of course they were all very like my parents would be very generous and like watch this thing but <laughs> in reality it was obviously not this magical um charged atmosphere that that it occupied for me um yeah but it was that yes i guess i was always interested in that um you went to ucc um what did you study english and history um mm -hmm. so arts mm -hmm. and that's where we met as well so mm -hmm. That is that is what I was studying, and of course, then we got a great grounding in making theatre. Um, this was it was the first year of the drama theatre studies course being offered there. Something that I think about, thought about a lot, and think about since there was so. so if, no, we always make you do, and I think any artist who is still around um, at our age makes a virtue of the circumstance in which they arrive but I think that there was this strange sense of in me anyway of well there are the people who have chosen to do um drama and theatre studies and then there was enough of a dramat um contingent still around to be drawn from every other discipline or every mm -hmm. other course and they were and drama and theatre studies students were still allowed to do dramat it's kind of over the years it's kind of flitted back and forth between being part of dramat and not but I remember having a real kind of um, healthy sense of competition with the with this theory and learning and knowledge that these people my age had about all these practitioners who I still don't you know I still don't know them, uh, but that you would, but essentially you were like given a, a space and uh, a, a budget to buy things for that space and free cast and free create creatives as I might call them now, mm. and uh, an audience which had. You know there was a culture of attending shows then because there were so many great people coming through dramat before us and 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 you know after us for a while too and nowadays i better say as well but you know it was more of a it was more of a well actually look, i don't know what dramat is like now but it it, it was a real way of the um, ali, ali ali robertson was running it at the time when we start when i started anyway was he still there when you were uh, he had just left just left yeah and ali was like in a the granny was was right in the center of the kind of industry in this city, which mm. was also kind of riding a wave heading towards the city of culture, capital of culture. And if a play, you know, it, it, we took it for granted again, that if a good dramatic play went on, it would be seen by Ali Robertson, who would send it, who had the capacity to send it to Edinburgh, two shows every year from dramatic went to Edinburgh fully, everything, all the accommodation of the actors and 
cast in it or crew uh, paid for. Mm. And it also had the potential to end up in the Midsummer Festival. Um, so you were um, right in the middle of, of a kind of a real uh, learning ground. And uh, yeah, but I mean, I mean, I meant to stress the word real there. Um, and I will stop talking about this in a second, but it was, it was, um, yeah, we weren't like, we weren't closeted, we weren't, we weren't like given all the resources and kind of like it would be seen by your lecturers and invited audience and it'll, it's fine if you fail. Um, it was anyone could come in and see these things and anyone who came in did, you kind of know, oh my God, that's like, that's Don Gallagher, he makes plays in the real world. That's mm -hmm. Tom Creed, he, he just left Dramat, he makes plays in the real world. Um, so it was, uh, Dramat was a brilliant place to learn. Um, and I know that we'll be talking about Hammergren, which did come out of that whole time. And I and I think something about the ethos that pre-existed my arrival in Dramat, about kind of everyone just doing it together, definitely form, informed the the kind of philosophy, which was not thought out in advance that 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 we stumbled into in, in Hammergren. Mm -hmm. um, everyone doing the get in, the get out, yeah, uh, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, you you became a, a secondary school teacher um, once you graduated. Um, were you conflicted between wanting to teach and wanting to write and perform? Um, well, like I didn't want to teach, to be honest, although I ended up really enjoying it. And I think I'm still, I still really like, I still get a kick out of teaching people or being in an atmosphere where I can, where people are learning and I can help with that. Mm -hmm. uh, and it gets easier actually as you get older because the gap is a bit more clear and I don't feel so um, out of my depth. But I so really the teaching thing was like was you know feeling like I needed a proper the, you have to have a proper job you know and you can or you can fall back on the theatre. Mm -hmm. oh, sorry, no, you can fall back on the teaching. Um, but I was good at teaching and uh, I did enjoy it, and so it became it you know it goes from like I, I sub I substitute teach taught for like a month at one point without any training and then next the following year did a the proper training again because I was like I guess I should have something um and it didn't look viable to to be full-time in theater mm. which I can see now is a very very much like me taking in what sensible older people were saying and and, and I can see it would have been viable but um, keeping up the kind of the idea that that work could still be made in the summer in the time off as we did, you know, mm -hmm. we did some of our best things did happen in the kind of time off in the summer, which you'd be looking forward to all year. But then the nature of a job that you become good at is that it occupies more and more of your time and, and it may, got made permanent, which was great, but also locked out more, blocked out more and more of the calendar. Um, and in the end, like I did a full six year kind of cycle. So I saw a first year group through and I really, really enjoyed it. And it's incredible. It's an incredible um, work, an incredible thing to do to teach and to see people forming. At the, I was a yeah secondary school teacher, and I think I couldn't have been a primary school teacher. I had no interest in that. Mm. Um, but to see people and I'm teaching English to teenagers, it means you kind of you bring in like this bomb like of a poem, and you and you and you just allow you see it going off in their heads, and that's really incredible. Um, but what was I trying to say? Oh, yes. By the end of it, I felt a little. I could see the other teachers who were who were in it for life and, and, and rightly so. And I kept on finding myself saying to young people, you know, you, sh you can do that. You can follow that dream, you know, of 
of being a basketball player professionally mm-hmm. or of, 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 of being a, uh, a joiner or a fashion designer and then I was like there's something hollow in me kind of going but what the hell are you doing like you you're less and less the the, the person you are the less and less doing the thing that you really love doing mm-hmm. um, so ultimately that became a reason to um, go on a career break which thankfully uh, broke fully and mm-hmm. um, and um, yeah I'm doing it now full-time theatre well, thank God. <laughs> yes, thanks, Owen. Yeah. Um, a lot of your work has a strong comedic element. Um, what are your main comedy influences? Um, like Unbelievables, I suppose, would have been when I was a teenager. I remember, I remember seeing, um, you know, Father Ted and The Office and Spaced. Um, so like apart from Unbelievables, who I never saw live, it was it was television and it was television. Ray, Billy Connolly on the radio, I loved that. Um, and um, friends of mine like Seamus Darcy was a big comedy influence. Um, Seamus, I guess, was his face was just like so brilliantly stern, and yet he'll be saying really, really. He still is. It sounds like he's dead. <laughs> he's alive <laughs> still. Um, and we were in school together, and we used to do sketches. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, like my sketches, I think looking back would have been way more flamboyant and ridiculous if it weren't for the kind of grounding of, of Seamus's like brilliantly deadpan delivery and kind of general intelligence. And, uh, and I learned a lot. I think that was, a, I remember like going, why aren't you like, why aren't you doing your voice louder and like bigger in my head, I would say this, mm. but you learn by working with someone that closely that, um, that's not important. So, um, and teachers were comedy influences and, and classmates and like, that is where you get your timing from. And I'm sure you're the same. Um, and I remember hoping and hoping and hoping that you'd stay in, in acting because I found one of your performances absolutely hilarious and dramatic, but you have that, um, ability to know when, the, when to not say the line and when to say the line, or you used to have anyway on, but I'm sure you still do, but I, but I, I think that's social, I think that's a social learning um, and it happens in like in, in a classroom, you're aware of what the boundaries are and you become aware of them by pushing them. And I was a good student. So it was kind of a complicated thing, like to be funny, to make your friends laugh, but to stay on the right side of the teachers mm-hmm. um, because I was a good student. So like, and looking back, I think there were like, as every classroom has, there were like experiments in, in public art <laughs> happening. Like I, uh, by sixth year, I used to stand up in the middle of a particular teacher's class for no reason and just wait for him to notice it. And he, he was really funny about it. And he would do, one time he came around behind me and just put a lot of books on the on the chair so that when I went to sit down, I sat and, and he, he had turned it into his joke by then. Nice. Um, so yeah, lots of comedy influences. Well, you know, the most important thing about comedy. Timing. Yeah. Um, You formed uh, Hammergrin with Sarah Jane Power in 2005. Uh, What made you decide to form a company? It was um, upstairs in the the English market in the cafe there, um, the name which, which escapes me, having a coffee with Ali Robertson and just describing uh, so he one had great faith in 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 us young people and said look um we, we he had seen something we like had, had done in college um and said um 
look, there's a slot in the midsummer. There's 500 euro. What would you do? And I, and that was like an email or something maybe. And then we met for the coffee at which I pitched this thing, trying jokes, which, which was the first time we're show ultimately. And it was like a jokes tribunal. Um, uh, and that, that was the idea kind of arrived fully formed. And he said, that's great. Now you like the company, you need a name for your company. Um, is it John McCarthy? What is it? And already I had started to uh, like working with a particular group of people, um, yourself included. Was it, were you? Yes, by then, yes. Um, and Sarah Jane, mainly we had worked a lot as um, in Dramat together. Uh, on lots of good productions and we, we were together as well we were, we were going out um, and Hammer Grin came from a story I never finished a children's book about a, an old man living in a cliff uh, by the sea obviously it's a cliff uh, called Hammer Grin and in retrospect if I was psychoanalyzing all of that the name which I do of course many 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 times <laughs> I just just looking into that, I think that like I mentioned Seamus Darcy earlier on, there's something about like um a face that it like that just hits you without a grin, that is a grin. Um and and the power of like or so much of our early work, which you um were central in too, was about the threat of humor and that joke, which is to not say something is funny. Um and something about the word grin and hammer and putting them together it does that as well. Mm. Um, did the European capital culture, you mentioned it before there, um, like being in Cork, was that any, any inspiration for you? Definitely. We were the young crew on the, on the street. So we very much had our backs up about, um, about, uh, like, oh, all this money, this is going to disgraceful, boring old companies, you know, what, what, what we do with that money. Which is true, definitely. When you know we would have done, there's just so much money floating around, and so much of went into these very ambitious projects that never really took off. Um, but it seemed to be the approach, rather than giving lots of people enough money to make something, they gave a few people a lot of money to make something. Things, uh, but so I think something about that mindset definitely inspired the next few years of kind of anti-establishment stuff, um, and something as well about the eyes of the city being the eyes of Europe ostensibly like cultural eyes being on the city I think must have been helpful and I saw some really cool things in the year and took mm. it for granted that we'd see, see them again that was probably that was really helpful uh, and inspiring as you say um, and I think yeah sure it was 2005 that was the first year we, we did a show so some of that money must have filtered down to us in, in fact you know from from the Cork Midsummer Festival mm. and um, and legitimized artists just a few kind of years ahead of me uh, who went on then to kind of when by the time I re-emerged as a you know back into the arts world fully they were all fully fully established with careers and everything and that's inspiring too in its own mm. way and, and drives you on and I think some of the some of the CV filling that happened in that year must have helped them but I remember like getting 50 euro to wave a flag in, in the city hall about like half an hour beforehand. My friend Colm got a text from someone who said, your man, Frank, weddings from Frank, is, it needs people to wave flags. He was directing the opening ceremony in the city hall, wow. which Ray Scannell had written. Um, and so, yeah, you show up given a flag and, and wave the flag and then 50 euro 
So, <laughs> so, so it did. You you were able to see the commercial benefit of arts as well. Like, I guess so. Well, well, it didn't feel commercial. It felt mm. very subsidized. It felt like, yeah, it felt, As, yeah. Maybe so commercial is the wrong yeah. word. The financial benefits as well, the fiscal benefits. Yes, if you're in, yeah, if you kind of get plugged in at the right time to the right source, yes, mm-hmm. yeah, um, definitely, yeah. Um, I was trying to remember the sort of timeline in terms of the early shows, and the morning yeah. after optimism was the first play that I worked on with you. But was that that was after? Trying jokes that was before the trying times, is that right? Yes. So so trying jokes happened in 2005, 2006, I think, and I meant to look it up after you after you had said that last night um, in an email. I think that happened in like the, yeah, in the, in the college term mm. sometime in 2006. And then in the summer of 2006 was the trying times. Yeah. So the trying times was a publication. Oh. 2000, that must sorry uh, sorry on the that must have been two thousand and seven the trying times so two thousand and six was morning after optimism morning yeah. after optimism and so the trying times was a publication um, the morning after optimism was a traditional play in the granary and trying jokes was where was that held that was in what was the what was then the relief courthouse while the main courthouse was being renovated so it was mm-hmm. Camden Key. Mm-hmm. in a courthouse court oh right okay which became then camden circus kind of exactly that building yeah. um so you weren't obviously you know attached to just putting on straight up plays in traditional venues from from the get-go um was that was it always like an ambition artistically for the company to sort of you know not just be putting on plays but also maybe doing publications uh broadcasts that sort of thing um I think like yeah like it makes sense to say that looking back definitely but at the time it was very much kind of idea to idea and and I think like Sarah Jane so myself and Sarah Jane would have been like the the main without it ever being formalized until later mm. on we we were kind of the the main drivers of what the next show would be and then people like you Kieran O'Connell Ronan Fitzgibbon would have been very much part of that then as well and in within that group Sarah Jane was always keen on on uh, doing plays and then you know there were several that we nearly got on as well like the taming of the shrew mm. in the bodega um, and I was always I always had a less um I, I was always not as interested in that um uh I suppose and more interested in in doing something let's say quote unquote original and by virtue of it being original, it was kind of and not ready by the time you would propose it. It was difficult. I um, so so it was it was kind of hard to say. Oh, let's put this on in a theatre space because we didn't even know what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think rather than being ambitious to to make work that was not strictly in a theatre, it was more like an ambition to make new work, mm-hmm. and then that not fitting into um, normal theatre spaces at the time. Um, it was, I think, what drove it. And this, this like, so yeah, the trying times was related to trying jokes, which was related to the threat of humour. Um, like, that was like the same oeuvre, you might say, being mined for a while there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I think maybe the trying times is all, I think Ali Robertson might have had something to do with that as well and just kind of said, look, there's, there's again, you know, there's money to make this. Would you be interested in doing this? And we, a lot of the success of Hammergren 
is down to people like Ali Robertson and William, William Galinsky as well later on, kind of trusting us to do something and giving us money um, to do that and formalizing what was really a group of friends, uh, uh, you know, and a group of fledgling artists um, trying stuff out for fun. Mm. Um, which do you prefer, acting or writing? Um, I, I don't really prefer them. Um, although, like, for the first time there the other night, and I know you heard it, they, they were in direct. It was the first time I've really been just reading a thing that I wrote as an actor, um, a script that I wrote fully myself, because with Hammergan, I would have been reading some lines I wrote myself, but everyone, including yourself, would have contributed to those lines. Um, and I never felt like there was enough time to rehearse the thing to really call, my, call myself an actor in it um, sometimes. But with, and that's not, uh, like, I love that, that we were real seat of the pants at the time. But, and in that moment of sitting there in the Everyman the other night with my script in front of me, trying to get the lines right as an actor, I, I was like, oh, I, I wish I could kind of just sit back now and let someone else do this. Mm. Because from that, that evening, the buzz was about the script I'd written. Mm. But I, I, I absolutely love, like, like in the Lonesome West, which you mentioned at the start, I just, I, I mean, it was just so enjoyable to I just, I, I used the verb plug earlier on again, I'm using it again here, and knowing I'm talking to a lighting designer, but like to just, plug into a brilliant um script served by a very good engine of a production and just do your thing in it um, mm -hmm. and i love that as well so i don't i don't and they go hand in hand with me this is um this is something that i was thinking about weeks ago um like from the get-go from when in school you first start act, i first started acting the this is a tiny bit of a tangent here on but it's it's worth it i think um the the school here for hall where we, thank you the school hall where we put on our plays was like a bit was it just a big school hall and then for the christmas concert you know your class might be the pe class who are drafted in for your 40 minutes of pe to lift the the little platforms into the from this horrible storage room into the hall and pack them next to each other and then uh, bring out like the two poles that have lamps on them um, and someone finds an extension lead and like and and that was I found that really exciting even then and then come the Christmas concert night it was our ordinary school hall but with like about a foot of stage uh, up against the bare wall and some nice teacher might have done like gotten the art class to do Kjola uh, Kamranolog and Nadia or whatever on the back and then all, and all the school chairs are facing it in various directions. So the, the, the wings of this stage are people standing at the edge, kind of looking up, waiting to go on. They're, they're almost as late as, as the people on mm. the stage. And yet, like, I remember the buzz of energy of like taking that one step up onto the, uh, just a foot off the ground, mm. where suddenly you're, yeah, whoever you are, um, Duncan Stewart was the character that I used to do sometimes. And I really felt like, I felt like my investment in that imaginative thing was shared by everyone in the audience. And I think you have to feel that to do it. But from that get from that time, I never really thought of like a script as pre-existing the performance, but like I need words to say to be Duncan Stewart. Um, mm -hmm. And then oh yeah, I will write them down and that's there. So that they for that early they went hand in hand. Um, and I didn't kind of like read plays or I didn't um, act play scripts that they, they were they came from the same like I want I want to be on stage with those people watching and listening to me so I need words to say mm -hmm. 
cool. That's that's the that, that's yeah. The, the line. Oh, that's great. Um, we spent several months working on K the Iowa project in the old distillery in UCC, and I still remember it really fondly. It's like one of my favorite projects. Um, how do you remember it? Yeah, it was lovely when you wrote that, um, because I remember it really fondly now as well. And I remember you and I being the only people who could who did like the get out the next day, like uh, which is a warehouse wide get out. And you know, I think like, like Kieran had brought home his um the expensive speaker that we used, which was a Wi-Fi wireless speaker at the time. And you know, everyone had brought back their costumes, I assume. And maybe there'd been like half an hour before everyone went to the pub of stripping the whole set. But I don't think we, so. Like, I think we dropped everything on the last night and went straight to the pub, like. That's what I think. Um, and we like a, a, a set that we had spent weeks building or mm. inventing, you know, we did all of that in this warehouse and returned it to pretty much the state it had been in. Um, and so I remember a lot of hard work and a lot of tension was there at the time. And I found it really hard. But but it was like what we made was extraordinary. Like we kind of never really lifted our heads above that to see it until it was there. Um, so I look back and it, I look back and with great fondness, definitely as well. But I, I, I also remember um, this, the kind of the, the tensions of like we've been we've been meeting for about nine months, maybe a year every week in Reedy's, just like talking about Philip K. Dick and science fiction and all these wonderful things that were in our head and the, the healthy but like very present pressure of we need to put something on now that justifies this or that somehow distills that distillery the old distillery um felt really pressurized but you reminded me in your email as well of how much of it felt like we were given signs by the building that we were on the right track and that we were we you know it was going to work um yeah i, I, I wanted uh, to ask you about that um like i've been talking to, to other practitioners sarah jane shields mentioned the phrase bricolage um owen boss from anu talks about the mise en scène of the city um, can you explain the phrase Théâtre du Chance? Yeah, I'd forgotten that. That was, I am at, um, I think, like, probably invented by you, was it? No, I think you invented it. I, okay. We were talking about the phenomenon that was happening, whereby yeah. every time um, we'd, we'd need something uh, mm. for plot reasons or for technical reasons, we tended to like find, you know, open a door in the back of the warehouse and there'd be like a thousand of yeah. them in there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, maybe you can explain it better. Well, that is it. And 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 also that they we arrived to to look at the site, I think it was Ronan Fitzgibbon and myself one day with Kay Mahoney, or O'Mahoney, I'm not sure if it's O or Kay Mahoney. And uh, we'd seen a few others and, and there was like a K on the on the um, loading dock. Now it turned out that they had put, they had kind of attached two massive um, rubber bollards to the wall to block the DOC of, of dock. But there were, it said K and we'd already decided this show would be called K, the Iowa Project and Philip K. Dick. Um, and that was the first thing the audience would see on the way in. So, so there was, there was, there was that, there was that. Um, but I was thinking about this even before you emailed because uh, that reading I did the other day was called the herd and on the way to the on the way to the herd walking past the train station uh, I saw a, 
and picked it up and I have it downstairs, a tag from an, um, a cow's ear just on the ground. Like you never, you know, one never sees this in the middle of the city, but there it was on the ground on the way to the, to the show. Like we'd done the rehearsals. We'd, it was, you know, quarter to seven. We were due to be sort of mics would be on from 7.30. So they, I brought in, I showed the cast, you know, and, um, and one of them, Dominic Moore was like, yeah, you know, it's a sign, but it's also because today you were looking you know, maybe you pass them, you know, many other times, but they're not related mm. to your day. Um, and I think we were looking so much then, like, uh, we were young and we were also scoping out this brand new territory in our create, like in how we work and how do you make a new show uh, without asking any of those questions in a formal way, really. Um, and so we were looking everywhere. And so when something was validated, as it did, as you say, when you and I opened up the part of <laughs> the extra doors in the warehouse that day and discovered a thousand boxes, having been like racking our brains for how we would get a thousand boxes to make a wall out of, um, it really felt like validation and and reassurance from the building, um, which it was and is. And I think it's also because we, you know, we were looking for a hundred other things as well. Mm-hmm. We were so... Um, and, and lots of them didn't get validated. And so we went down the track of the boxes. But I think it's a very creative space to be in when you're in a, a building. And you mentioned Latch there, um, which was the kind of which was the last Hammergren show proper. And I remember right at the end of that, um, definitely with Sarah Jane and maybe you and Kiran and Ronan were involved in this as well, realizing that we'd, we'd done it the wrong way around. Like we had written the show, found the place put the show into the place mm-hmm. and and what we ended up with like was this extraordinary playground lit, lit beautifully um you know with all these speakers in like 20 rooms or whatever it was in, in houses looking onto a green uh as the sunset and um, these brilliant actors and a car this cool car that that from the past mm-hmm. and i think if we had started with each of those elements uh that would have been you know there would have been an incredible show in there it was still a very good show but it it did the opposite of what we'd gotten really good at doing which was arriving yeah. seeing what was in a place and and letting yeah we, 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 we weren't responding to the site we were you know kind of uh imposing. responding to the script and yeah imposing yeah. The, that on the site uh yeah i, I agree with that um, so, but going back to um, the Iowa project and the old distillery, like I felt like UCC sort of gave us the keys at the start of the summer and then just left us alone. Um, mm. But I presume there was more to it than that. I was kind of, I wasn't uh, at that point at all involved in sort of any of the production side or the producing side or anything like that. So I had no contact mm. with the authorities whatsoever. I was just um, kind of helping out and, and trying to light it in that sort of way but how was your relationship with the college and like you know especially considering the company hadn't tried to make um site specific work well it was you know now that I know that you, you had worked in Camden Palace before but um <clears throat> yeah you know we're re- relatively fledging company uh, in terms yeah. of this kind of work I found uh so the trying jokes thing had been a great learning curve in that it it felt you know, basically like a, a little boy was asking this grown man who was in charge of the court courts authority to give us a space on the promise of like, well, we were going to do a, a funny show in it. And he did. And and uh, I was so nervous about like when we were getting out of that building, I cut uh, a microphone cable <laughs> and like I woke up in like like six months after that still, I would be having like nightmares about that, that, that he would go in and see this and say that 
though that young fella, though that, that company, they they vandalized the space, um, and we had given them such trust, you know. We'd give, mm-hmm. so I had a real, I had um, both kind of the reassurance of that 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 can happen. People do give you the this responsibility, and also a fear of of mistreating that. So when it came to the IO project, I mentioned K Mahani, and there's K, that letter K again was like an angel from wherever angels come from. And she um, walked into this meeting in the old distillery, which was a bizarre thing with me and Ronan Fitzgibbon and eight men in suits um, because the building was, I don't know if it's still, was, was co-owned by the Mercy Hospital mm-hmm. authorities, whoever they are, and the UCC people. And uh, so there wasn't quite agreement on who would be giving us keys or what keys we would get because different doors belong to different organizations mm-hmm. um and as we as we discovered and i won't go into detail on it but there are quite sensitive things stored in there as well so it's bizarre that they ever gave us this uh, license but uh, and i use the word license like metaphorically so um so I'm about to drive. Uh, yeah yeah um and i remember that meeting like that we kind of went down a row of men kind of going oh i don't know is it complicated i don't know no i don't know like and the next person i don't know and it got to the last and Kay kind of said look guys we need someone to just sort of say yes um because look uh, we'll otherwise we'll have to have this meeting again in a week and the last guy kind of said i suppose we can say i suppose we can i suppose we can yeah we can we can say yeah provisionally we could say and she's like great um who's giving me the key um and so like basically ron and i kind of stood there and went yes you know but having watched this political morass um just be blown up brilliantly by k so that's how it worked and and then i think they were happy to just forget us and give you know they didn't want to know mm. and i think we might have learned that from Kay as well she just said like unless they're in touch with you she may have said this i feel like she did you know don't be we don't want to be giving them any hassle or any reminder that we're actually in there mm. and so we just we had the keys to this huge space yeah fantastic she was fantastic on that show and, and yeah. continues to be a brilliant production manager um yeah. the show was devised by the company um uh, you kind of answered this a bit, but like, to what extent did the space itself influence the work? Um, obviously, the the side, like, I, in my memory, that we had ideas um, around, say, Philip K. Dick as a subject, around sort of Americana themes of kind of McCarthyism, um, that sort of way, you know. Um, but we didn't have like. We, we, it certainly wasn't finished and we didn't have, I don't think even maybe a, a kind of like a breakdown scene by scene of what we were planning on doing until we got into the space. So yeah. um, do you like kind of remember how how that space, you know, yeah. made that show? I mean, it did. Yeah. And again, there's an element of looking back here and, and the end product, you know, seeming like an inevitable um, result of walking into that building. But it, it definitely clarified the fact that the audience would be walking around because it was such a big space. And then we only had one way in. Remember, right in the door, it ended up you would give the introductory speech in character. Um, but right next to you there when you came in was a huge cage, basically. And mm. um, so then we had a cage, um, <laughs> which felt quite clinical um and so there felt like a it felt like there should be some kind of clinical experimental thing happening in there with people in white coats mm. and there were squares on the floor where people could stand um so there we were kind of already 20 minutes into what ended up being the show by the time you just walked in the front door and looked at the the front entrance and, and looked at the space in terms yeah. of how each room felt 
and then we all all felt like that the 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 the, the gap between that room or the threshold into the next space was a significant one and that and our, our kind of imaginative um leap began there and then just like in a very practical way um we had to we said well if you get in there then you see all of the rest of the space where we hope to kind of have these like treats for people as they journey along so we need to cover that and we found the building gave us the warehouse gave us like thousands of filing cabinet um uh, what, what would you call them folded paper uh, things, binders and filing or, cabinets yeah, or, or binders, sleeves yeah. yeah sleeves yeah those green beige sleeves with the metal hooks on the top of them mm. and so they were, we were like oh yeah we'll just hook all of them up along and they'll block the, now the fire officer ultimately didn't wasn't happy with them we found another solution but once i think we started playing with that material that gave even more of a hint that we were on the right track with as you say the mccarthyism that kind of filing cabinet feel of um of america and americana and um and establishmentism and uh and and then like honestly i think it was just how do we how do we have an hour or so's worth of journey through this space and plant little scenes as we as we strike upon them in in there on the way um and there was a conversation in the franciscan well where we were like maybe maybe we we were only maybe weeks from from the show and kind of doled out the task of 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 particular like scenarios being written up by Sarah Jane and Kiran, and I remember the relief when they came back the next day, and we like had scenes to actually work on. Mm. So only then did the story start um, being formalized with words. Yeah. I think in my head, anyway, I think we already had a rough layout of the whole space mm. uh, that the journey did. Whole yeah, journey. I, I feel like yeah, we had we had where things are going to happen, but we actually we didn't have dialogue until extremely late. I don't know, maybe yeah. were, were we sort of improvising? scenes in them as part yeah. of that process yeah 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 which is which is not a way that i've worked with you know worked since um as in you, you might do something like that in the development but mm -hmm. as part of the rehearsal process you know designing the set uh, layout and writing like during the rehearsal process with an actual deadline i don't know mm. like it, it, i don't know it's a courageous or foolhardy you know um but it, it did work. I feel like though, you know, something would have worked. Um, yeah. There was just too much kind of potential there for for something, for nothing yeah. to happen, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we had like, we'd gone to each other's houses and stuff and sort of had what, what in, you would call now like kind of workshops of, mm -hmm. you know, let's just try and, and we'd, we'd come up, we knew the characters who would be in it, mm -hmm. Douglas and Ava and yeah. Nathan. Um, yeah. And we had the story, you know, so like, as in we had, we had the feel of this pulpy feel of a Philip K. Dick story. Sure. Um, but so, yeah, like, yeah, it really was. I mean, I remember us all being so surprised when we heard that it had almost made it into like one of the Irish Times Theatre judges had, you know, had it in, as their, one of their best productions that year. Mm. Um, and also the, the reaction being so good. Um, yeah, because it, it it was just like um, it made such sense to us, but it must have been so unfathomable if you if you kind of arrived at the door there and what was in all the what was ahead of you. Yeah, sure. Yeah, um, I felt like everyone on that production tried their hand at everything in terms of writing, mm -hmm. performing, designing, set building, even marketing. 
Um, was that an organizational structure that you wanted to use? I suppose you talked about it coming from Dramat. Um, was it a symptom of our relative youth and inexperience or low budget? Um, the way we mostly hadn't specialized in various practices yet. Yeah, I think it is that, and um, and that is exactly what I would what I think of it as well. And and when I was reading your question, then just for the sake of trying to bring uh, something of myself to it, I was thinking: is it was it is it inevitable like that? Um, that young. And it, 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 you see it all the time of young companies coming out and having this very nice ideal of, of everyone will do everything. Um, and it's such a great way to learn. And I, I think the only additional thing I would, I, I thought about that last night was that um, there's something about the order in which the practical challenges of a production come at you that's different when you're young than, and inexperienced and you're not really part of an institution or there isn't much funding than there is when you're more established. And, and by that, I mean, you kind of, you, someone gives you an opportunity like we got in the Midsummer Festival, and that's a blank space uh, into which you fill everything. You don't really know what is the order in which we do this. Um, mm. And so why would someone kind of say, I'll be the director when there is nothing to direct? Or why mm -hmm. would someone say, I'll, I'll write it when there is nothing to write? Um, or I'll light it when there's nothing to light? And so the collective, um, ambition and hunger to put something on means everyone is invested in the piece before it has become a thing to compartmentalize mm -hmm. and at that point it becomes trickier to like i remember feeling like i wanted i don't really want anyone else to to um i would love to like stand back and direct i'm inside in the cage bit in kdr our project i was like oh i'd love to just like stand back and direct that but i have to sort of maybe let these other people stand there and do that too mm -hmm. because i had such investment in what it could be then as opposed to someone emailing you and saying, "Hey, I've written KDO project. Will you direct it?" Mm -hmm. So I think it it, it, um, as it it has an idealistic thing about it and a youthful thing about it, but it also has a very practical um, kind of process in 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 terms of when you encounter the project and how you encounter it. That means roles specialize later on. Okay. And the next project, Hollander, was staged the following summer uh, in a listed building in North Mall. And this time you took a much more central role in the writing as well as playing the main character. Um, I think everyone in the company upped their game that year, um, but I can only imagine what it was like for you rehearsing and rewriting your own text uh, while also doing all the producing stuff like dealing with the landlord and the festival. Um, did you find that stressful? Uh, yes, um, but as I said about, I didn't. I don't think I found it as stressful as, as KDRO project. Um, maybe because it was contained in one building rather than a warehouse and maybe because also we had that that year we sort of um, acquired the brilliant builder bobby and oh, yeah. uh, and i just remember the excitement of there was a notion we had early on about having an upside down room and another and there was another notion about we wanted to work the building then determined that we would need to build rooms inside and rooms because we couldn't do anything to the existing rooms because it's a listed building as you said there um so once you have that limitation in place it gives you this real opportunity to go okay well, well we can build rooms within rooms so there's going to be like a, a gap behind the room um, what if you make it look really, really real and then we get to have people moving around inside behind the walls and stuff and coming out of the walls. Um, and so a lot of the kind of the look of the show was determined 
by wouldn't it be cool if the audience didn't know that if we made the room the first room look really old or lived in and mm. proper and i think we i think we did succeed in that um, mm-hmm. um and then the second room would be an upside down room and and all these things became much more exciting when the our main kind of designer set designer person at that time was ronan and fitzgibbon and he knew bobby and he was like oh i think bobby can do that and i remember turning up and he was just i think you were there as well and mm-hmm. he was using like just pythagoras to kind of uh, measure he like had a stick and he was like yeah i think that'll yeah yeah cool and 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 then he did build everything um, from from scratch um so 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 yeah the in some ways it was a very exciting project to work on even more so than kdio project because we were we had um learned a lot on k in hindsight we were specializing a bit more like you didn't you insisted on not doing any acting mm. um and you had this <laughs> like like you know you rigged lights for a house that already had lights but you had to rig your own um and that you know so you had your little project which was which ended up with this wonderful switchboard kind of thing that only one person uh, could yeah, operate. yeah yeah david texera lynch yeah. operated it brilliantly sitting in one of those cavities in the wall um you know other people like kiran had found he had, as well as co-writing it with sarah jane and myself he he was able to kind of go i want to have live music so let's write the live music um and I guess we, who are more interested in writing, got to be. Let's have a script that happens in each room. And um, so the specialization that we had begun to move towards in K was at a really good, as a sweet spot before people kind of became maybe too specialized to be working mm. together. Um, but yeah, there was. I do think the, the the brunt of the producing organizational stuff did still fall on me, but. We had to, kind of had a charm about us, you know, a young company with a lot of ambition. And it was on in the Cork Gay Project. The, the guy who the building was occupied at that time with the Cork Gay Project, and they were incredibly like facilitating of us. Um, so it never felt like we had, we weren't hiding from the owners like we kind of were with KDIO Project. Mm. Um, in fact, he had loads of antiques and stuff they wanted to incorporate into the show yeah we, we, we drove out there one day looking at yeah. for for props i think was kind of how we were sort yeah. of saying them but really they were pieces of furniture you know and they were they were chairs like that's where we got all the chairs from from right. uh, that i can't remember his, his name now um really nice man roach i think um, something roach i will look it up yeah you're right yeah. i forgot about the chairs um yeah yeah from from his own house like yeah yes so, and actually, another thing that um, when you speak about organizational structure is that um, Sarah Jane in particular was interested in directing. And unlike Kay, we decided when we had a budget from the Arts Council, we decided we could like bring in real quote unquote actors. Um, so we had like Irene Kelleher and Paul Mulcahy and Una Kerwin come in. Mm. Um, and that, um, and Karen, no, Karen was part of the company. And that kind of um, freed us up a bit as well. And also, made us feel a bit made me feel a bit more professional i guess mm. um, freed us up from having to ask you or kiran or people who weren't as comfortable acting as the rest of us to to do these roles that needed to be filled and people who could just learn their lines and not have to also like wire a house or compose a score mm-hmm. um, 
but then personally i guess it was uh, as being acting in it as well like i never felt like i really i really enjoyed that whole i loved like the, there's a fire at the end mm. of the show when you went outside there was like a uh, we had a fire pit or we just had a, a lit fire as the audience went out the back mm. garden and uh, after the show each evening we'd kind of congregate and sit around there maybe have a drink or, mm. or you'd bring marshmallows or some suitably <laughs> scouting thing like that i actually remember we heard about michael jackson's death uh when we were sitting around the didn't we yeah i think so yeah 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 sitting around the fire there but so it's the whole experience like it's really incredible and uh, otherworldly to think back on it and i enjoyed everything about it except maybe the acting just because i didn't get to I never felt like I fully occupied that role, even though I had all the right costumes and said the right lines and was in the right room at the right place. Um, but uh, it was it was a joy, yeah, mm-hmm. joy of a project. Yeah. And and you, as you said there, you you wrote the script with uh, Kieran O'Connell and Sarah Jane Power. And yeah. how much of that script was written? I I was kind of trying to figure out how to to phrase this question like how much was written bef- before the we found the actual house but we knew that we wanted a certain type of house and how much was was, was written you know inside the house or um mm. you know as part of that uh, that process i mean the honest answer is i don't know but i do remember um so i, I like I, most of it definitely wasn't written by the time we started putting set in the house mm. but a lot of the ideas were formed like the central idea of um, um, a guy who needs to put his house in balloons in order to look in the cellar for his deceased missing wife which, came out which we should mention time. yeah yeah predated up <laughs> predated up that was another amazing moment to yeah I was I think it was you was it were like um look at this uh and even our poster was a little bit similar to the, I mean, I guess once you have that idea, your image is definitely going to be based on buildings with balloons above them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, um, I do rem- and I do remember we had decided that it would be about the Starling, uh, it would start in the Starling battle that happened in 16 something or other in Cork, uh, where thousands of Starlings fought all day above the city and dropped onto the roofs of houses. Mm-hmm. And um and we had gone and I, I had gone and, and I was a history guy. So I had gone and like researched mainly just by reading the Annapolis of Cork City. Donald Underskill edited that, a historian in UCC, and just rating it for other cool stories. So we'd mm. kind of done a lot of... I mean, that, 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 sounds, like that. that sounds folkloric, but that is that is yeah quite well established in history, like with multiple yeah. kind of accounts of it, right? Yeah, yeah, and, and bodies found, <laughs> bodies of starlings, you know, mm-hmm. found in all kinds of roofs for many years afterwards. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah, and then that kind of line of threading, um, I suppose, magic realism and and history, and we, I think we did that really well. Mm. Like we're probably going to talk about Latch, and, and um, after that process, lots of people were kind of interested in us and. Um, among them, of course, William Glinsky, the director of the Midsummer Festival, and uh, who had been a who who was a huge advocate of our work and and encourager of it. And I remember he kind of he put this he kind of said, "Oh, you know, you could you could work with a dramaturg next time out." Um, 
And uh, I think we learned an awful lot. Uh, I certainly did working with a dramaturg in the next project, but I learned it for shows that happened years later and happen now. Like we, the dramaturgy of Hammergren, I think reached a very good place in Hollander because nobody really knew what, the, like the story hung between the three of us. And I think audience members got different things from it. Um, and it was like a really vivid experience to go through it, I imagine, as an audience member. But it wasn't like a kind of um, didn't make sense, really, you know, as a narrative. In a, uh, it was full of these fabulous ideas and set pieces. And there was a kind of a, um, a nostalgic atmosphere under it. Um, I think even at the time that was the case, like it finishes with a guy in silhouette looking out um, into the city and kind of doffing his hat uh, and closing the door um, to the audience. Mm. So there was a real kind of um, trope of uh, of maybe older, beyond our years of kind of, of moving on and um, which I guess dramaturgically is very interesting, but I think it worked very well because we didn't know what we were doing as well. Mm -hmm. um, I remember the show selling out very quickly. There was, there was a limited capacity of about 15, which then became, I think maybe 17 or 18 mm -hmm. uh, when we were squeezing in extra people. Um, did that sort of exclusive, did, did you ever kind of wrestle with that exclusivity, you know, of having a small audience? Do you, did you ever consider mm. whether um, the making the work this way kind of limited the accessibility of it? Um, I guess I did consider it, not maybe not in the not directly. Um, and I think as a company, we, in, well, so I feel like I enjoyed kind of that we sold out, you know, that easily. Um, and I also think we existed in relation to the, the, the kind of big, proper, established site-specific company in the, in the city, which was Korkadurka. And at that stage, and I admire them, I think all of us do and did, um, at that stage, they were doing uh, huge kind of like large-scale site-specific things where you had 400 people a night coming to them. Um, and like, so we weren't ever going to do that. You know, that was already being done. And, and I think... I, like so much of this is so long ago Owen, as well it's uh, like I don't know how much of it is just how I think about it now but I think there was an awareness that we would need to do something different and more niche or um exclusive I guess yeah is a word mm. that, that, that you could use um but it also was like in that instance it was I remember in K like it was just how many people the fire officer was happy that could go in and what the smallest room was which was that first room I think mm -hmm. that established our limit our, our um, capacity then sure. and with Hollander it had to be how many people we could get in the room and those chairs you mentioned dictated yeah. that so um but yeah, uh, but I suppose I mean starting new, from a starting off point though I mean it was a case that we knew it was going to be a small audience we mightn't have had the exact number mm -hmm. but we were always mm -hmm thinking that it would be a small audience um, and it wouldn't be a sort of thing where, you know, there'd be like, say, recurring performances so that, you know, it might be on four yeah. or five times or six yeah. times a day um, to allow, because I feel like mm. there there was, I can't remember the exact number, but like it, it sold out very, very early in the, the spring, mm. like well before the mm. festival started. And from that yeah. time, you know, the festival were onto us, like asking us to do extra weeks and and all this kind of stuff. Um, yeah. which which we didn't for a number of reasons not like not necessarily uh, 
for not for you know for keeping audio some percent it was like practical reasons and around people's availability and stuff um but yeah. but there wasn't a point and where we were kind of going um oh let's you know let's run it all summer or there was never sort of a sense that we wanted you know everyone to get a chance to see this it was kind of understood that this would be something that not everyone would get to see and that was part of its charm and that was actually a um a plus for for the show you know um kind of making it more special for the audience who do get to see it yeah and very special for us again like um yeah i mean the fact it never happened again and uh I think you've said it all there and, and and the only thing to add is is again it reminds me of projects that happened after that and before it and I, and I think of you like having timed the sunsets for um latch and how you we wanted that moment every evening when 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 light goes and 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 suddenly theater lights bleed in mm. um and with hollander you know it was a case of they would begin in daylight outside come in and work their way through this house and end outside in that fire I mentioned already. And there were, you know, we learned on that run that actually some nights we had to go delay it a little bit because it was, it wasn't as effective outdoors if we got out there a little bit mm-hmm. too early. Um, so there was something about, about you know, we, we, that word ephemeral was definitely in our vocabulary and we loved that and, um, and how, how the event was one off each time but also like things like a new weren't in my head as as ways of doing things i don't i wouldn't have worked anyway but there wasn't kind of a um, and yeah we didn't have the resources to pull that off but um i think i think like if if you could go back and and tap us on the shoulder and say you know this is a really good show you nobody not many people will see it (laughs) Like the 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 director of the Dublin Theatre Festival came, um, and that was kind of probably the only person outside Cork who who saw it, um, and yet we know what the, the Irish Theatre. Well, that, that's, the Irish and, Times Theatre judges yeah, also saw yeah, it. So, yeah, that's true, and and you know they, that was I mean that's been great ever since as as a thing on the CV. But um, if someone had said, yeah, like think about you know remounting this the following year in the same building or or like store the sets or or and maybe we did have those conversations but that nothing came of it yeah um instead of restaging something i can't remember if it was the next year i believe it was um that you know you mentioned no, it was latch two years there. Later. Oh, was it two years later um mm-hmm. so latch um can you tell me a bit about your memories of it i i have a sort of like I don't know, a sort of um, a sort of sense that like it wasn't as everything rosy in the garden. It was sort of like more of a troubled production, mm-hmm. I feel. Um, we had gotten, I believe, more funding. We had, you know, a bigger team involved. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm not sure that the, mm-hmm. the process was as enjoyable and I'm not sure that the results, mm-hmm. that we were as pleased with the results. Um, how did you feel about it? Yeah. All that is all that is correct. Um, I remember Sarah Jane and myself agreeing that it had been a logistical triumph, you know, to, to pull this thing off, um, and not a, not an artistic one. Um, and there were moments like th- there's there were moments uh, definitely where it worked, but um, I think it was it, again it was tied into that thing of like oh we need to be this time we're going to have a dramaturg and this time. 
I'm not acting in it. And this time we'll write the script way in advance. And this time we'll have a bigger budget. And the things that you're aiming towards as a young company, I suppose, and we got them really quickly. Um, the success of the of Hollander meant there was a big expectation, you know, to, to do something even bigger, even better. Um, but like I said to you the last time or in that previous question, we understand it happens to, you know, bands, it happens to theatre companies, it happens to groups of people all the time. We, we lost, or I certainly did anyway, lost focus on what it was that we were good at, um, which was responding, genuinely responding to a place. Uh, and like, maybe that is impossible with it, with that big, well, no, people do it, okay. But for us at that time to let, let's go out and sit in a housing estate for a few weeks um, with whatever the budget was, I, I genuinely don't know, but I think it might've been something like 80 to 100 grand, I, I think, I don't know. Um, and, and that's kind of, a, you know, that amount of money has a pressure behind it as well for a young company, you know, what, who, how many lamps do we need, speakers, um, cabling actors uh, and we had this you know we just wanted to do things properly like the big grown-up companies do and that's very condescending to me in the past you know of course we we thought we could do it as well i mean you know there are moments like i said where it worked i just i thought it looked absolutely beautiful and there's photographs um march and Lewandowski took that are still like stunning to look at um and i think that they yeah i think the well, yeah, that's my favorite thing about it is how it looked and, and sounded to a degree. But yeah, it was, uh, you know, it's the kind of thing that maybe if Hamburg was still around, you'd go, that was a real turning point. And we learned an awful lot about what not to do. And maybe individually we did, like I, I definitely did uh, mm. in terms of writing. But it did scare me off uh, at going into production in a big way, like hugely. It scared me for years. Um, because yes, you're right. It was a very troubled, like th there was a security, self-appointed security guard roaming the, the set at all times, um, who, who would kind of surprise our actors just before they went, uh, you know, on to act. Um, I don't think he was self-appointed. I think we did hire him, but he he took no, no, it no, on we himself. We had a brilliant security guard. No, no, we had oh, sorry, yes, guard, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. In the yeah. estate, there was a guy who lived there, a resident. Who that's correct? Yes. And then we had like unprecedented bad weather. So like you, I recall, had to devise a way of um, the lamps not being drowned every night and mm -hmm. the cables, you came up with the upturned pot. But it was it was difficult. All the fences blew over that were, that we had to maintain, you know, to stay in agreement with the, the real estate agents, whoever they were. Mm. So, yeah, I, mean, I, very, I think a lot very, of it was, very, very was... Stressful the um in terms of like responding to the site and the organization of that that it, it, unlike uh you know the the old distillery or um the hollander house like i mean i never really felt welcome or comfortable there mm. you know mm. it was a, yeah. it was a yeah. unfinished housing estate it it had it was very ghostly it had a mm. lot of the sort of economic pain like writ large mm -hmm. across it like every day that you'd go into work there um it, you know mm. the, the site would constantly remind you of like how terrible this you know economic crash was and how it split people's families and ruined people's dreams and mm. all this kind of thing and, and then you know the weather the 
the unfinished mm. kind of concrete nature of it just had a, a very sort of like depressing sort of uh, feeling to it. Um, but we did, we like we, we had, so I mean, I think the, you know, upturned pot solution might have been something to do with Robert Fury. And, you know, we did have like a fantastic team of people who have, a lot of whom have mm. gone on to work with mm. since. Um, I mean, was mm. that a, uh, was that, the changing of the team, the increasing it, did that also like have a fundamental change in the way the work was made? You know, like taking it from the small group of mm. very close knit theater makers and mm. suddenly expanding, maybe I think like maybe doubling the the size um, of the team. Yeah. Um, like again, a lot of my fonder memories are up. I remember the kind of control room room in one of the houses in this row of houses in the estate upstairs remember that and it was just brilliant like it was he had made this kind of control room for a housing estate we had rigged mm. i think illegally and um, the the esb lamps to, to you know to come on and off um there were speakers in every room which didn't quite work because the levels were off but uh, and all of this all these wires ran into one room in the in, in a kind of a pre-chosen obviously uh mm. house in this estate and, and i do i got a buzz out of that out of the that we had to have our own toilets um, and the logo of the guy, the slogan of your man was your business is my business. I, I enjoyed that. He was a portaloo guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I, and we had rehearsal space. And so I think it'll be, it is probably definitely part of the problem, but it, I also very much enjoyed the, the bigger capacity of the company. Mm. Um, but I do remember feeling that the, that outside of myself and Sarah Jane, the kind of core of the company, which is which was you, Kieran and Ronan, I remember feeling a tension there, uh, definitely because we were kind of going, no, 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 we, we'll have the script, and you know, Sarah Jane will direct, and I'm not going to act, and it's definitely going to be about Ghost to States, and um, Owen, you're going to do the, the, you know, I think you were happier in that, you know, Owen, you're going to do the, if you want, please do the lights, and. And, and I think Ronan and Kiran, because they're also writers, were frustrated by the the, the cutting off maybe of, of their input in that regard. Uh, maybe you were too, um, because you're also a creator. And and I was aware of the, the, the kind of group tension there, which any group has. Um, and, and there was also a question of like, I think we were all at a critical point. Again, I think mainly you of going, well, look, this is like, what I want to do um, and is this company going to be is this going to like take itself as a company going forward you know making theatre or as and I, and I do think like myself and Sarah Jane are more kind of going well you know we'll, we'll do projects as they come along but obviously sure. we'll have other jobs and sure yeah and yeah I, I definitely that, remember that strange. being a sort of schism where myself and I think Ronan uh, wanted to really kind of clarify the company mm. and we wanted to join yeah. the company and make it you know yeah. an organization and i think yeah. kiran was more happy to like do it during the summer you know and continue yeah. teaching um yeah. as his primary job yeah so yeah. um which was like yeah so i mean i was also teaching and sarah jane was working in ucc mm. um and ronan was raising i think they had their first child and you know so so it was a it wasn't a full-time company but I think all of those tensions coalesced in that, um, in a not in not a very creative way, um, 
but we all managed it you know we were in our early 20s we all managed that very well too and came out of it you know very strong uh, mm. uh socially sure but i don't think it's a coincidence that that was the last proper hammergren production mm. um and with uh with we'll, we'll talk about the next show then i mean um you know with with fees for lighting designers going through the roof and sound designers fees at an all-time low you decided to write a science fiction radio play um so where did the idea for in darkness vast come from and was it always going to be in the form of a digital audio download uh yes it was so it came from so um, was it just so you didn't have to pay lighting people yeah okay yeah not until the launch you know the big launch of season three where you know we'll need a spotlight (laughs) yeah no it 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 felt very much um in darkness fast it felt like uh, i had plugged myself out of a network that i didn't fully appreciate by by going to london and learn you know it was great for many reasons too but um, suddenly the power that you that I had in Hammergren with all of you was that I could go, oh, I have like a fledgling idea and or someone else would say it and, poof, you know, would grow. And we had the we had the talent and the capacity and the reputation to make it happen to a position where, you, you know, I felt like I was shouting into a void um, in London mm-hmm. and saw young companies coming up and I was then in my mid no it was like I'm late 20s so and I kind of went okay I have to do that I would have to do that all over again I would have to work for free here all over again find new friends and collaborators all over again and I just couldn't do that I mean I literally couldn't do that you know I don't mean I found it hard to do I just couldn't find that those connections anywhere mm. and so I heard a BB I was listening to BBC radio and there was did, you, did you did you attempt to do that sorry to interrupt yeah no yeah. no um i did like you know in the uh, kind of uh, i guess i'm i'm an actor so i should audition for plays but it's a very different it's a massive industry over there and, and the kind of tail ends of it are very um they can i'm sure there's some really good parts that there <laughs> as in i think if you start in a if you started in drama school or something maybe uh you you come up with people like we did mm-hmm. and you get to a position where you can put on quality stuff but mm. to try and connect with that industry you find yourself way out in the fringes doing potentially like just doing absolute nonsense um for no money and it wasn't for money it was just to try and meet interesting people um so yeah i did try and do that and did a few things but really you know it felt so paltry compared to what i had here um so I, it turned me into a writer you know because i that, that was the only control I had. I could uh, I could write things even if they couldn't be put on. And um, so about two years into writing things, I felt frustrated that nothing could be put on that I was writing. So, and I heard a BBC radio drama from the 70s set in space. And it was just wonderfully kind of camp actually and silly, mm. but in earnest. So it wasn't silly, it was camp and in earnest and uh, set in space. And and I've always loved sci-fi as you, as you know, and as you do, I think as well. And mm. uh, so I thought, yeah, I can, I can imagine making this and it's a way of getting some of the gang back together. And so that's where it came from. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, you went from an audience of about 30 uh, with Latch to thousands um, within Darkness Vast. Um, what was that like? And how did you know how many people were listening? And like, how did you get feedback from the audience? 
yeah, but it feels like a completely different thing. Um, so it, they don't feel like a same. It doesn't feel like it's even relative, you know, because one is one is live theater and the other is a stats thing on your on your um, server. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people tweet or email about it. Um, and so it, it's it can it doesn't feel the same at all. It doesn't. There's a satisfaction in that it kind of churns away in the background, and every few days, to be honest, I kind of go, "Oh, how many? Oh, cool, someone listened to it there, or oh, cool, there's more listeners in Canada, or whatever." Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like a, an event, um, but I feel, but it's a really great place to learn. Like I, I learned such a huge amount about sound design and editing, and writing in the first one that I applied in the second, and at the end of the second, I felt I was ready to kind of make a really quality piece of audio work which is mm. what i'm working on at the moment uh, not there's anything wrong with the first two seasons at all but they they're working towards uh they're learning they're they're scoping out the territory and i think there's episodes in season two there are episodes in season two which i'm really proud of mm. but the whole thing was done on a shoestring and um and sometimes you can tell that so it, it doesn't it feels like a, I, I use the name hammergren um but it, it doesn't feel like the same at all. Same body of work. No, no, it doesn't. Yeah. Um, you split your, so you're, you're working on that, but um, you also, you also have done a lot of acting um, and, uh, and a lot of writing. I mean, do, do you prefer one over the other? Do you want to continue doing both? Yeah, um, I do want to continue doing both. And I, I am, um, don't really prefer one over the other that they occupy different parts of my day like you know breakfast or dinner I guess and I like both of them a lot but I like breakfast I like dinner uh this analogy has just struck me actually it's very useful that that is how I feel about it I don't I don't wake up and go I'd love to eat my dinner now um nor do I want to have Weetabix at like six o'clock in the evening right so um they're the, the writing buzz and satisfaction is 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 wonderful in itself and then the like acting and 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 just controlling just being one character in a thing is wonderful as well Mm. um when you write theater plays um do you have a space in mind for the performance or do you write it and just hope that whoever puts it on will will take care of that yeah, that, that, that's definitely, um, I've realized that, that my writing doesn't work at all unless I know the whole space of the, and by space, I mean kind of the, the, the set of the, the staged set mm-hmm. of the, mm-hmm. the play that I'm writing. Um, and I could fizz out dialogue all day long, but, but I uh, and often do, <laughs> and, and, you know, throw away vast amounts of like grand dialogue. But if it doesn't, it, it, I know I'm onto something when I can kind of, when I realize a character's turning around to pick something up or, or they're looking out a window and I've known that window is there even though I haven't written it down. Um, so maybe every playwright has that, but definitely the sense of like site-specific work um, that is specific to a theater space. Uh, that doesn't make sense. Sorry. I think I have always had a, um, uh, an interest in, in finding out where the story is and um and once once you kind of get on once you sniff that trail in the piece of writing for stage it's very exciting to kind of realize that the the set that you have in your head is, is telling you the story um 
so like the, the herd which you heard the other day mm-hmm. is set in uh you know I, I had written the whole i guess first act of it without with no knowledge of what the second act would be but then i realized it's t- like it's it's a it's a falls um what's why and there's pictures up of a musical family uh, a family of musicians and there's something temporary feeling about it even though it's in the middle of an old countryside and um, an ancient herd and like so all the ingredients that that kind of are necessary to to work the second act were in the in the um in the place that it was set yeah i really enjoyed the play um i recognized your voice in the writing um it's surreal uh methodical um surprising and a bit sentimental and there's something very traditional about it like thematically and linguistically that kind of reminded me of uh, maybe some of the sort of stalwart writers of you know the Irish canon like Brian Friel and Conor McPherson um who would you sort of consider your literary influences nowadays yeah, I, I read your um, email there where you said that, and I thought it was—I thought it was really uh, brilliant, for want of a less praiseworthy word, <laughs> like that—that that description of it as methodical and sentimental, in particular those words. I was like, God, yeah, because I don't, but I think that's absolutely right. Like in any of the um, plays I have written uh, since then, since Hammergren, there is—they are relentless in their kind of internal logic, um, but they are. Um, they're kind of like our, um, structures that that squeeze out a tiny drop of sentiment, and that, that's kind of the distillation of the whole piece. And so I've been thinking about that since you since you sent it actually, um, because I don't want to be sentimental, but I'm like, God, yeah, it definitely is. Um, so, and then in terms of yeah, you mentioned Brian Friel and Conor McPherson. I always found Friel. Um, we were, we were talking about how the first play I saw properly was Dancing Lunasa. And at school, I remember really like, I couldn't wait until the teacher would ask me to read parts of um, Philadelphia, Here I Come, you know, to be our private. And it was great fun. And I, I had cousins and I have cousins in Northern Ireland, so I could do a Northern Irish accent. And it was just great to do that. But I thought, but I kind of feel like school ruined Brian Friel for me because I could just see every play dissolving into themes and issues and uh, who is the main character and what is there. So, so, Friel has always, apart from Faith Healer, which I've never seen, but I love the script of it. I kind of have no uh, real dramatic interest in in looking at a Brian Friel play or reading a Brian Friel play, Brian Friel play anymore. But Conor McPherson, um, The Weir was an early play I saw. That first production of The Weir came to Cork, I think was the first production of it. it was, I was a teenager anyway. And I just, I, it was just phenomenal. To, I thought a phenomenal piece of work all around I didn't even think about the writing of it you know I just thought wow this is amazing these 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 this, this is so funny and spooky and sad and beautiful um and that's kind of the only play of his I really like um again so I guess they are yeah influences um I love reading Beckett's stuff and Marina Carr's stuff um Shakespeare like but you know it feels it feels a bit silly to be kind of saying that these are <laughs> these are my influences <laughs> thank you very much William and Marina here is the future um but uh yeah uh, like all, all anything that is exciting to be at like we were probably next we were 
definitely some of I think you were there in the cat club when the theater club show uh, stealing a clock radio what was it called mm-hmm. who stole yeah it? yeah theater club yeah. stole your clock radio what the fuck are you gonna do about it yeah I saw it in the cat club I think you were there because you mm-hmm. would have I, um, was, I was not I was thing, I was outside and it was just like okay I was doing so. front of house how do you know you were outside because i was doing oh, front of house and uh yeah i had to i had to sit outside i think because uh, i was waiting to get in to do uh, another show to do a turnaround so i ended up seeing it but it was funny i ended up seeing it like years later but there you go anyway okay right because i just remember the electricity of that i still don't i, I don't know i don't care what it was about or but I've just been like, whoa, this is what the hell, what the hell is this? Um, or, or like Dumbelievables, I mentioned them before, just or Dermot Morgan on the Late Late Show, you know, I would put them on a par with any of the I'm not trying to be like high bro, low bro, just I would just kind of when I'm excited about what I'm doing, it's because it feels new and uh tense in a way that that kind of work felt to watch. Mm. Um, have you found that like travel restrictions uh, of the pandemic have impacted on your ability to write? I mean, I assume they've impacted on your ability to perform. Um, yeah. Well, not like so uh, wonderfully here. Um, I have a little daughter called Iris and she was born right at the start of the pandemic. Excuse me. So um, that's been a much bigger restriction than, <laughs> than COVID uh, for now. And uh Again, that restri- like I've mentioned the word limitation, I think a few times in our chat, like that restriction imposes a certain routine and ritual approach to work, which I'm beginning to find is working. So even though I can only maybe do a few hours a day, they're very valuable um, concentrated hours. So uh, maybe it would be the same if, if Iris wasn't, if for some reason I was living a different life and, and, and I was there wasn't a greater force on me than the pandemic limiting my my ability to do things maybe it would have become a i think all of us like you're turning it in this instance all of us turn all of us who are who can fortunately um turn circumstances to our advantage as much as we can so i guess something else would have been worked upon mm. um are you tempted to move further into the space of recorded work like a podcast format or do you still want to primarily write for live performance yeah i want to definitely write for live performance um and bring yeah bring bring what i've learned from and will learn in in terms of the recorded stuff um like the next piece i'm hopefully doing is in february and it's a one-man show it's first time i'm writing a thing that i will definitely be in and uh oh you're you're performing it yeah, I'm performing oh, cool. it, and um, that feels like there's a. It feels like an audio piece, um, because it's kind of about voice and accents and stuff. But it's uh, very much about live performance. So um, I guess in some ways the there's a there's a coming together of those two things there. But like I mean, it, even in the podcast, it, it I'm it's all about the it's the dramatic and it's the characters and it's the situations that I enjoy, not necessarily the format. Mm. Um, um, in terms of the format for that upcoming performance, will that be again mm-hmm. through the Everyman Live? Yeah, hopefully. I mean, uh, it's all up in the air again now because, but it, it looked at for a while like the timing of it might be that you'd be able to have an audience in. Um, so it's early February, sure. penciled into early February. 
and um, uh, that that was the hope. That is the hope. But they also now have um, they've invested in as lots of venues like Smock Alley have. They've invested in proper HD or 4K or whatever it is uh, cameras to broadcast live. Um, so it, it might may well go out in that way as opposed to mm. to the traditional way. Or pr- but, presumably uh, both. Point. You know, presumably there'll be a sort of a hybrid yeah. format before there's one or the other. Um, you mean you mean a hybrid of live and as in there'll be an audience there and it also being streamed. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, presumably, yeah, yeah. Okay. I think it's interesting though because some plays. Sorry, I, I know I will I will keep this brief. Some plays, like there's another performance I'm involved in, which is a uh, for young people, and it's and the director of that, Niall Cleary, has chosen to do. To just even though the cameras will be there in the everyone to just do it as an audio piece because it works better for the story so i think that's interesting mm-hmm. as well that some things are best not seen mm. <laughs> <laughs> um i think we're about to think of the same thing there <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, I'd forgotten that Iris was born this year. I was going to ask what was the best mm. thing about 2020. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's obviously. Definitely Iris, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, what about great. you, actually? I thought it was a great question. What's the best thing that's happened for you uh, The best thing was uh, for me, it was um, having time to think. Um, mm. Yeah, without time to think and time to plan. Because um, mm. you, you do spend most of your time as a freelancer hustling or working Mm. or worrying about not working and when you're told that you need to not work and you can't work um that gives you an opportunity um to to think about what you want to do um but now i've thought about it and i want to get back to work Uh, yeah, so, anyway um thank you so much for all your time and uh, it's you. been really great chatting to you and um yeah best of luck with the the next performance have a merry christmas thank you and that's it from offside just want to take the opportunity to thank everyone who uh, agreed to talk to me thanks as well to astronaut mike dexter uh, for composing the theme tune and thanks to the Arts Council for supporting this project it was uh, really useful for me thanks for listening talk to you soon